Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. This is Guy Hasegawa, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Sharon Ellison of the Duke University Health System. Dr. Ellison is co-author of a paper entitled Perceived Versus Real Risks of Handling Gene Transfer Agents in the Pharmacy Environment, and that paper will be in the May 15, 2010 issue of AJHB. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Sharon. Thank you, Guy. I appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about your position there at Duke and the position of your co-author, Dr. Deborah Hunt? Yes, I have been at Duke for 19 years. Um, I did work for the health system for 17 years in the Department of Pharmacy. I have a couple of years experience in the IT department with the e-prescribing software. And about six months ago, I came to the School of Medicine. So I'm no longer with the health system. I'm with the university side of Duke and I'm a vice chairman for the Duke University Health System IRB. It's the IRB for the health system, but we're actually out of the university side. My colleague, Deb Hunt, is an assistant professor at Duke University. She's the director of biological safety, occupational, and environmental safety office here at the health system, and she's not on the line with me, um, but she was explaining to me earlier today that at Duke, anyway, infection control and biological safety are two branches of infection control. Infection control here at Duke focuses on um, controlling infection in patients, and her office, biological safety, focuses on controlling infection safety of employees here at Duke. Right. Now, these uh, positions weren't exactly the same as they were when you first started the paper. Is that right? No, they weren't. Um, I was an investigational drug service pharmacist for about 12 years. And when I started working with this article, probably two and a half years ago, I was heavily involved in the investigational drug service at Duke. Deb's position hasn't changed in the time that we were in the article, but mine has. Okay. Uh, Can you tell us uh, in a nutshell what the article is about? And I think it's changed since it first started a couple years ago. Can you tell us how that happened? Well, sure. When we when we first started writing the article, it was a group of people. Um, seven or eight people were involved. We had had some experiences with some research here at Duke, and those experiences had led us to contact different institutions and find out what they were doing with, I'm going to call it gene transfer. Uh, the real umbrella term I think people use is gene therapy, but we explain in the article why we talk about gene transfer. That group of people decided based on their experiences and what they'd found out from other institutions that there were um, a myriad of different ways that they were being handled at different institutions and that it might be a good idea to write about our experiences. Those eight people came from different backgrounds, except for Deb Hunt, my co-author. The other of us were all pharmacists. And we started out with a really big task of gene transfer, gene therapy, and how pharmacists could be involved in that and what they could learn about it. And we talked about writing a report. We talked about writing a primer. And we really kind of thought, well, this is a a big 
big topics. Maybe we'll do a three-part report. And after this process taking two and a half years, I don't know that it will become a three-part report. But we really, initially, we're going to divide it up into an article, a background, the history of of gene transfer, the risks of those agents, um, just some uh, general uh, background of, of what they are and what they do. And then we also talked about doing a section or a different article on the processes and standard operating procedures in pharmacies. And a couple of the group really were wanting to focus on facilities design. So it was a, a huge topic and it was a huge group of people. And as positions changed and interest waxed and waned, what we ended up with were really kind of what led us to write the article all along was our experiences. We had had a lot of experience with perceptions of of what people really had heard about gene transfer and especially the vectors that are used in gene transfer, the viruses that are used. And what we came away with was that there were a lot of perceptions that didn't really match um, reality. And that's what we chose to focus on. And so we ended up doing a commentary uh, focusing on the experiences that we had had and and what were the real risks versus what were people thinking about and what were their worries and concerns. Just so our listeners understand exactly what kind of agents we're talking about, can you give us a couple of examples of these agents and how they're supposed to be used in the clinical setting? Um, I can, and they're they're wide and varied. I can give you a couple of examples that we have dealt with. Um, uh, in the investigational drug service, we had dealt mostly with adenovirus as a vector used in gene transfer therapy. Um, my colleagues that work in the investigational chemotherapy service at Duke were also using adenovirus and were sometimes using vaccinia virus and some other pox viruses. Uh, in the investigational drug service, most of the studies we were handling and still handle had to do with cardiovascular disease, specifically peripheral vascular disease or intermittent claudication where we were trying to get a gene to um, trigger angiogenesis and the viral vector would get that gene in to establish some more blood vessel growth. In the opposite manner, in chemotherapy, a lot of the trials were actually using a viral vector to trigger antiangiogenesis to stop blood vessel development in within a tumor. Those are the broad things that we had experience with, but there are all sorts of vectors being used and all sorts of diseases that are targeted now by gene therapy. Well, then what are the uh, real or the theoretical dangers of handling these agents? The real risks really have to do with cross-contamination of other agents, cross-contamination of really any kind of pharmaceutical agents, but especially chemotherapy agents or drugs that are being given to immunocompromised patients. I think it's an area that people are aware of, but um, in our experience, that wasn't really the concern. When you start talking about viruses, we got a reaction that was more a fear that they were going to contract a, a particular virus. I think that there is a very real concern and some documented evidence that cross-contamination is a problem and that proper decontamination of biological safety cabinets has to occur in order to prevent that cross-contamination. Theoretically, there have been some cases uh, in labs where 
if you're using a replication competent virus and one of the few that we actually use currently that is replication competent is vaccinia. So there have been five or six cases where in a lab, a worker who was not using proper precautions or proper procedure touched an eye with a glove that was contaminated and, and did develop some smallpox in, in the particular eye. Those are, are real risks. The theoretical risks are that the virus is going to attack the worker. And the, the agents that we're using, for the most part, are not replication competent. The ones that are replication competent, we can eliminate those risks by using proper procedures. And what we found is that people's focus is really on environmental controls. People's focus is on USP 797 and, and clean rooms. And all of those things are good. It's not really the focus of our article. But you have to have proper environmental controls, but that will never cover the base for proper procedure. And we're really trying to communicate with pharmacy employees, the technicians and the pharmacists who prepare the agents that it's really universal precautions and sterile technique that are going to prevent any type of problem um, or hazard in, in preparation of these agents. What sort of training, uh, other than what pharmacists or technicians would normally have in an IV room, uh, is necessary for handling these agents? Well, really, other than uh, USP 797 training, there are training programs available for uh, biosafety level two. Those programs are definitely helpful since the agents that we're dealing with in terms of the viruses used for these gene transfer studies are all right now, if they're replication competent, are all at biosafety level two. They're not replication competent or not even um, viable vectors. They're at biosafety level one. So training programs through the NIH at biosafety level two are definitely helpful in terms of how to, how to use these agents. The other thing is in, you know, in work in a hospital, any kind of program uh, that your infection control or biosafety lab, biosafety committee offers in terms of universal precautions or dealing with bloodborne pathogens, although the viruses are not bloodborne pathogens, the way that, that you treat those and the way that um, you can handle those are very, very similar. So those three different kinds of um, training programs are available and are definitely of use for people that are, are preparing these agents. So where is Duke going as far as the preparations of these agents is concerned? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that Duke and, and a lot of institutions are just getting more and more of these agents. Um, here at Duke, I think there isn't a final answer on where and how these agents should be prepared. We have three clean rooms within the pharmacy, and there is a dedicated hood and a dedicated room um, for viral vector preparation. I think that's an ideal process where you have a dedicated hood. It's a biosafety cabinet, and there is more of a move here at Duke to get those agents prepared in that area. There are timing challenges and resource challenges and challenges, too, of just where these clean rooms are located. Duke is um, a big campus. There are the South Hospital where our clinics are and outpatients 
and a lot of our research is quite away from our hospital campus. The clean rooms are spread, two of them on the clinic campus and one in the hospital tower, and um, just making sure that the area that has the hood that can be used, that we can get the agent back in a timely manner to the patient is also an issue. A lot of these agents are stored at negative 80 degrees Celsius, and they don't have a whole lot of um, information in terms of stability once they're thawed. So they are very conservative. The sponsors usually are saying, you know, one to two, three hours max of preparation and infusion time. So getting these to the person in a timely manner is um, an issue as well. But I, I think we're moving away from the isolator concept of preparing these agents. That was really where we were when we started writing this article and um, the experiences we've had and the things that we've learned are that the biosafety cabinet within a clean room is really the way to go. We're not advocating for any certain way. Uh, I think the way that the institutions choose to handle it, there are many different correct ways. I think our move is probably to be in a clean room, preferably with a dedicated cabinet, but if not a dedicated cabinet, then something that can have proper timing to do a, a good, thorough decontamination process. Well, thank you very much. I think that's about uh, all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us, Sharon. This is Guy Hasegawa, Senior Editor of HHP, and I've been speaking with Dr. Sharon Ellison about her paper, Perceived versus Real Risks of Handling Gene Transfer Agents in the Pharmacy Environment, and that paper will be appearing in the May 15, 2010 issue of HHP. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.